Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I am a happy Cavs fan, Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 30 of the North Meet South web podcast. Go Dubs! <laughs> Uh, all right, so I'll admit it. I am actually very neutral when it comes to the idea of basketball for the most part. I don't watch any regular <laughs> season games. I just kind of pick a team for the playoffs. But I loved the story of the Cavs game last year and how the Cavs came back and won it. And I think they'd be crazy if they did it again this year. Uh, I don't. I don't have a ton of faith that it will happen. But I thought it was a good game last night. We watched it, and uh, Michael was disappointed, and I was elated. I uh, saw LeBron James throw himself an alley-oop in a playoff game, which is kind of crazy. That was pretty fun. It was a pretty fun game to watch. Travel. Travel. They would oh. never call that a travel. Oh, come on. LeBron yeah. James so has never any- been called for traveling in his entire life. Dude, I was watching some highlights last night. I just came home after the game and was on YouTube for a little bit watching a couple of highlights, and they were like... You know, it was like 10 street ball moves used in NBA games, whatever. And like, I swear, every single one yeah. of them was a travel. They, they People yeah. travel all the time. All the I'll time. tell you what, the secret in the NBA is that as long as you finish with the dunk, you can travel. Yeah, that's true. That's like, you know, it's all about the fans, right? Just, that is exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and although, I mean, like, I don't know. I honestly don't know if it was a travel. I, I was watching it. I, I guess I didn't watch his feet. I was watching the ball too much, but... Uh, that's crazy. So yeah, he like jumped too early. Throw the ball right? He wasn't going to make like that. Yeah. yeah. You can't he throw got the caught ball in the air. Like, well, no. I mean, you're not supposed to be able to. It has to be a shot. You can't be the first person to touch the ball if you throw it in the air and it's not a shot. So, but there's a bit of leeway there on that one. Yeah, exactly. I suppose so. Huh. But you're right. Yeah, he was, was he cool was off. very smart about it though because he got caught in the air. He had no one to pass the ball to, so he just threw it at the backboard and, and went from there. Yeah, I guess that's the other thing is it's like, you know, how many how many people would have thought to do that? You know, he's just such a he's just an incredible player. He's an incredible player. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with you there. And and the, the Warriors couldn't hit anything last night. Like everybody was missing. Could right? not literally could not shoot. I think I made more baskets at a better clip than than Steph did. Yeah. So that was disappointing for Warriors fans. So uh, sorry for you guys, but uh, you've already got three in the in the basket, you know, or in your pocket That's there. Right. So you should. It's, it's you three should and be, one. It's three and one. This fun. happened last year. It's very yeah. very disconcerting. I know. Right? <laughs> it was funny though. Ultimately, I don't care. I'm a I'm a Lakers fan, so whatever happens, happens. I'm just rooting for for California as long as it's not the Clippers. There you go. There you go. Well, um, let's get a couple small things out of the way here, and then we had one Twitter user question that we kind of wanted to focus this episode around. So let's first talk about the package that you made and have been working on a little bit recently, which makes it much easier for us to make users in our Laravel application. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah. So we, we've been talking about at work for quite a while now, coming up with our own sort of base repository that we would, we would sort of use as a, as a starting point for all of our Laravel applications, which, which has a few of the base you know, models that we use, it has some of the architectural decisions we use and some things around um, our production memcache configuration set up in there. Uh, part of that was having this command to create new users for our applications because in a lot of cases, we don't have any user registration. 
our stuff is mostly internal where we would actually create user accounts on behalf of users for those applications. So basically we use the the make auth scaffolding or the quick start that, it, that we've got in Laravel and then we'll just strip out all the registration stuff. So the only way to create users in the initial stages is to basically fire up Tinker and then make users accessing the models directly. But it's not really intuitive for if any of our service management team, for example, had to go in and create a user account for someone. So what I did is just create a small package that basically creates a, an artisan command, registers an artisan, artisan command for you, just make colon user. And then you go in there, pass the email address. Um, it does some things around, you know, you can either have it generate a password and then it'll automatically send the password reset email to that new user. Or, or you can you can set the password and then optionally uh, send the password reset as well. And then there's a bit of other stuff in there to um, handle, like if you've got other fields in that in your user table, so if you've got an admin flag or something like that, you can pass that as a comma-separated list in the same way that the Jeffrey Ways model, well, he had that package a while ago, the, generate, the model generators package. So, yeah, just a little helper. I don't, I mean, it's not, anything too special but um i will i'll get it out i wrote it on a friday night so i figured i'd wait until the start of the the new week before i published it and tweeted about it very cool yeah i also can see that you are also doing the auto loading getting ready for laravel 5.5 so you've got the providers all set up yeah it's like three extra lines in your composer.json file so um yeah just shove it in there and and uh, let it do its thing so yeah for those of you who have not heard yet about that in laravel 5.5 and you're probably familiar with this if you've ever installed a package that is being used in Laravel. The first step is Composer Require. The second and third steps are usually here's the service provider path uh, to the class of the service provider that you need to put in your app.php providers array. And then here is the facade that you would you know link up in your, in your facades array in your app.php. And so in Laravel 5.5, Taylor has basically said that is not acceptable to have to do that anymore. All we want to do to get a package working in Laravel is Composer Require. And so what they've done is they've used this sort of this extra key in the composer.json file and they're using that to load up providers for you automatically so it auto wires it kind of so when you require a package that is assumed to be used in laravel it will auto load those service providers for you and away you go so that's pretty cool should be nice to have that in place this make user command this is something that i've made probably two or three times across different repositories of mine and sometimes I'll use it for a, for like a regular user table, like exactly like what you said, basically just there's no registration form, just make it that way. The other uh, way that I'll do it is I have a post out there that's been out there probably for, I don't know, two years, two and a half years, something like that, about uh, using token authentication. So, you know, Laravel has a, a little easy to use token authentication or token guard. And I usually separate those from my regular users table and put those in an API users table because all you need really is like a, you don't really need anything other than a token field is all, re- all you really need. And um, yeah. so then I point the token guard at the API users table. And so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll be generating a uh, API user instead of a regular user. So yeah, let's think about how you might be able to, I don't know if that'd be something that'd be on the roadmap for this thing, but be interesting if you could just like set the table or something but then you'd also yeah. have to set which fields and stuff there are i don't know yeah so currently what it does is it its first parameter assumes that you are using email and it and it uses basically your authentication configurations model so if you go whatever the i think it's config auth is it auth 
I think auth providers user or whatever, like it uses mm-hmm. the model out of your existing yeah, yeah. configuration by default. But just in us talking about it, I think it would probably be trivial to make that configurable. So if you specify a model at the package level, or even if you pass it as a argument, as or an argument or as an option, yeah, that'd be easy enough. And then you could also specify like the name of the of the I don't know what you'd call it, like the username field, I guess. Right, right, yeah. So you could set some really pretty standard defaults, but allow you to make it configurable uh, easily so that you could swap it out to use a different table or have a couple different properties or fields um, that you could that you could pass in through command line. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of kind of users and authentication and things like that, I was I had a, uh, a guy contact me on Twitter. Let's see, where was he from? Uh, I don't I, I think he's from Germany or something like that. Anyway, he was talking about using a single sign on sort of feature. And had mentioned this library to me that he's using, which is ADLDAP Laravel, I think. Let me double check this here. It's ADLDAP2 Laravel. And it looks really awesome for anybody who's trying to or needs to authenticate using ADLDAP. So Active Directory, that is. So anybody who's you know in a Windows environment and has Active Directory users and needs to have those uh, Active Directory users integrate with your Laravel application, this looks like a really awesome package. Now, this was not available when I first started doing this stuff, which is sad, but um, <laughs> it, it looks like it has everything that I could have wanted and probably a bit more as well. So I've actually been looking through this and kind of taking some ideas for stuff that I could do. One of the pain in the neck things is that I can't develop or, or log in to my applications when I'm offline because they require that you connect to ADLDAP. Yeah. Or through LDAP. And so like if I'm at home and not VPN'd in, I can't actually connect into the application to see what the user would be seeing because I don't have, you know, the active directory server available. So what they do in this case is they say, you know, they have a little config switch, uh, which basically allows it to fall back to using the database. Mm -hmm. It stores user passwords locally, which is like, eh, I'm not sure if I'm crazy about that because yeah, uh, just whatever. But but it was a cool option. And I actually do have a mock auth kind of a, a mock auth binding. Um, so in my auth provider or whatever, I'm, I have a different binding that will just allow me to log in with a fake username and fake password. Um, it just returns me kind of a, what, what AD would return me. So that works, but yeah, they've got some cool, cool features in here. I thought it'd be worth mentioning on, on air. Yeah. I think I have vague recollection when we switched everything over to active directory when in a previous job, we were doing the same kind of thing, but we were caching. I don't think we were caching the credentials as such, but we were, cre- we were caching the user in the database so that we weren't hitting Active Directory every time. Not from yep. a you know connectivity point of view, but more so from a you know hit the database because it's going to be cheaper than hitting the Active Directory server. Mm-hmm. But I don't really remember the specifics around that, so it's not too useful to you. <laughs> the the special situation that we kind of have is that we have multiple applications. So we have probably like five or six or seven different Laravel applications that are operating inside our intranet. So the challenge is we wanted to have them be able to sign on one time on any of those applications and be able to have access to any of them. So what we needed to do is if you sign in on a Laravel application, the, you know, the session is established for that Laravel application, not for the rest of them. So if you go to yeah, a different one, sure. it doesn't have the fact that you're logged in. So what we did is we ended up putting a little microservice in front of AD and when they log in, it will hit that microservice. That microservice will check to see if it has cached 
values for that user. And if it does, then great, it will, it will return those, or actually no, nope, sorry, sorry. If they're logging in with credentials, it will go fetch them from AD and cache them and then return them. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we do is when we return those values, we return a token value as well. And that token value points to that cache that we have. So then what we do is we store a cookie on that user's machine that is available across any, any site that uses the same subdomain or any subdomains that use the same root domain. So if it was um, app1.mycompany.com or app2.mycompany.com or app3.mycompany.com, all of those subdomains can access that cookie that was set on that root domain. And in that, in that cookie, we have that token value. So the first thing that we do when they come to the application is we send them to the login page if they're not logged in. It then looks for that cookie to see if they have it. If they do, it grabs that token and tries to authenticate them. And then we'll grab those, those cached values and return those. Because that's the only way you can do it without having to have them log in again. Like AD won't give you those yeah. values unless you have the username and password. So that was our kind of way around that. We, we expire the sessions after like three days or something like that. So you don't get stale yeah. values. I wonder if we could use Memcache or Redis to do your sessions and then you wouldn't have to worry about that because then the sessions you could persist between the applications as long as they're all using the same like the, mm -hmm. the application name or whatever the prefix is for those things that's interesting something that's generic across them no that's a great idea that's kind of like what we do with our database stuff right is so we have yeah. we have a database server that is used for all of the applications so um, instead of connecting to a mysql database on the box that they're on they all connect to this central one which makes it a lot easier for a lot of things. But that's a really great yeah. idea. Yeah, well, we have to do that even for a single application because we run everything in uh, high availability. So we've got two servers. So yeah, if you if you were to connect to one server and then your session would be redirected yeah. to the other server because you know the, the first one becomes unavailable or whatever, you've got to keep the session alive. So right. yeah, I mean, that could be one approach. I don't know, you know how much time you want to spend on it or if it's even possible in your context, but it could be something to think about. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's not like we store a lot of stuff in the session anyway. I would just be, the only concern I would have would be that there would be something that would pollute the session. You know, there would be something that'd be used in one application. So I'd, I'd pretty much have to like namespace all my session values, you know, something yeah. like that. Like if there was something that I was pushing into the session, I'd have to call it like app1.sessionValue and then store it at that key just to make sure mm -hmm. that there wasn't something, you know, like for example, like if there was old data, I guess yeah. that doesn't, no, that does get put in the session. Yeah. So like if you're redirected back from a form or something, now this seems it could be a rather exceptional situation and it has that old mm -hmm. data in there and then you went to another site that actually had the same sort of input uh, name, which is not unlikely, it could populate that in there. You know, that's the only thing I'd be worried about. Yeah. But hmm, interesting anyway. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, it's not an it's not an exceptional circumstance where you would have like an input field with the same name between two different applications. Yeah, especially because we're operating in the same domain. You know, it's like it's this is yeah. all these are all internal websites, so like the language that we use is very similar, and you know they all perform slightly different functions, but they use a lot of the same language. So, um, yeah. for instance, claim would be a very, very common you know, name that we would use in multiple places where it could possibly get polluted from a different application or something like that. Mm. So, okay. Um, real quickly before I forget, the uh, guy who reached out to me this last week was Manuel, Manuel Strebel, I think. I'm going to get his name wrong, but anyway, we had a good little convo. So thanks, Manuel. Well, we wanted to, you brought up that there was somebody who asked a question on Twitter. Will you read that for us? 
Yeah, so it was Michael Ishri, Ishri, maybe there's a rolled R in there, who asked, asked about production deployment workflows for Laravel. So he says he's not a fan of deploying via Git hooks and manually logging or and manually logging on and copying files is a pain. And he wants to know if there were any other tools apart from Envoy. Okay, so let's talk about this real quick. So basically the question being, um, they want to talk about production deployment workflows. So I thought maybe what we could do is we could kind of each describe what our production deployment workflows look like at our particular place of business. And yep. then we could talk about alternative options because he said that he's not a fan of deploying with Git hooks. Now, I'm not sure if he's saying he's not or him, his employer is not. Does he specify? He does not specify, no. Okay. Okay. That's another issue. But let's, let's, why don't we talk about our workflows real quick here? Um, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So uh, we, over probably, I don't know, a month or so period of time, we sort of standardized our workflow. So everything that we're doing is via Jenkins. Um, so we'll push our code into GitLab. It will run through any pipeline. So run tests, do mess detectors and, and um, you know, code styles and all that sort of stuff in GitLab pipelines. And then once once we're ready to get a deploy going, that then goes into Jenkins. And then we build out from the from the master branch always, unless we're doing user you know, UAT deployments where we will deploy a release branch. Um, we will deploy from master from from that GitLab instance and it just pulls down the code locally, it builds it, so it runs the test as another layer of checking. It it makes sure that uh, all of our assets are built so all of our styles and scripts and all of that are compiled um, it makes sure we've got all composer installed and everything is basically set up to go and then we'll deploy the files to production just via rsync or via ssh i think it does from jenkins to the production service um, so that means you know we, we don't copy things like node modules across and we don't have anything going across to the production server that doesn't need to be there um, so we'll leave things out. And then we've got some sim linking processes and stuff for shared storage because we're, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, on a HA setup. So we've got anything that needs to be persisted between each of those servers goes onto a shared NFS storage and is then sim linked into the shared directories that way. So yeah, that's that's our general workflow. Everything pretty much goes through Jenkins. It took us a bit of bashing and crashing around to, to get it all working. So we, we have some assumptions and some conventions that that we require across any of those Laravel applications. So they've all got to have a yarn log file. They've all got to have a composer log file. And um, we will always run the tests. And if there's no, you know, if there's no test to run, then there's no test to run, but we'll always run vendor bin PHP unit. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's our general workflow. We have used Envoy in the past, not Envoyer, but the the local Envoy um, as, as manual deploys for a project for a while um there are some things that are just uh like log into the server and do a git pull um it, it, it varies case to case but most you know 80 90 percent of our deploys are done via jenkins okay wow man it's crazy like as you were talking i was just writing down questions and just different pieces <laughs> and it really is sure. insane like so you when you when you talk that out when you talk that through it seems very like okay like I can, I can see where you're going there, but it really is kind of revealing how involved a deploy of a modern PHP web application is. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot going on, yeah. So I'm going to ask these questions for myself and for anybody who might be listening. Um, and sure, I, there's a lot of them. So let's try and get terse answers here because 
I literally could spend an hour and a half talking about this with you probably. <laughs> so, okay. Um, sure. I have recently been looking at, I'm, I'm starting to build out a little SaaS that is very much a part of this continuous integration sort of uh, idea. And I was just looking at and trying to figure out GitLab's stuff the other day, yesterday, actually. So maybe you can help me understand this idea of pipelines mm -hmm. and whether that is just like your continuous integration step where you talked about mess detectors and is testing done at that step? Yeah, so pipelines, think of them like middleware, right? So you have one step that runs into the next step, into the next step, into the next step. And then we've got, for example, our code style checkers will will lead to a, a failed build because we want all of our code to always yep. look the same. Yep. But things like mess detector and copy-paste detector, which we run, um, they're more informational. So they'll, they'll spit warnings out into the pipeline. But the, but the, uh, the test will run developer to developer. They'll either run them manually or they'll have something set up on their machine to run it as a pre-push pre hook um, in Git. Pre-push hook. The, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on, on the size and the scale of the project. Some things I always want to do. You've got to be careful though. Sometimes you don't want to run, depending on how many times you're doing a push or a commit and where you put these things. You don't want to have your test suite run every time you run a commit, for example, especially if you've got a lot of lot of tests or if you've got large or slow tests okay but yeah, yeah so the pipeline is yeah is is think of it like middleware like you'll go through each each step of that and if any part of it fails then then the whole process bows out so it's similar in concept to even on github when you send a pull request and then the pull request will trigger a build in jenkins and it will trigger style ci and all that kind of stuff like that's essentially the same kind of Process. Yeah, except for there is no concept of like middlewares. Like they all run at the same time and on their own thread. You know what I'm mm. saying? It's not running mm. in GitLab. Mm. It's like each each SaaS that you're kind of uh, spitting this out to has access to your code. We'll pull it down and then we'll run their tests or we'll run their yeah. checks against your code and then return back to you a status of passed or failed. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out is how like GitLab is different than that. So like for instance, with your mess checkers and all those, will those run in parallel? Do you have all those run at the same time? Yeah, the or mess you... checkers and that will run in parallel because yeah, it doesn't like we don't care so much right. if, if that those steps fail. Um, but you know the test will run first, and then there is another step that will run next. So though there, there are two steps that basically, or three steps I think off the top of my head that will basically tank the build, and that you know you get the red cross and you go no, you can't deploy this because of whatever reason. Okay, so there is integration for like outside SaaS applications that you could like pull in and say like, hey, I want to run this step in my pipeline and this is the application I'm using to do so and it has access to my code and those sorts of things or no? Yeah, I believe so. I believe it, okay. I believe it can, yeah. Okay, that's what I was interested in. Okay, assets. Um, so like compiling your JavaScript and your SaaS and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. You do that in one of those pipeline steps? Uh, so the building of assets we do as part of the deploy. Okay. So that that happens in Jenkins, yeah, on that on that build server. Okay, so Jenkins is like Jenkins does not live on GitLab. It is Jenkins triggers. It's a I'm separate, sorry, GitLab. Yeah. GitLab triggers a Jenkins deploy. We will do the the deploys in Jenkins manually. Okay, so like once everything passes through your pipelines and all that stuff, and you get the green checkbox, you say, okay, great, now we can deploy to Jenkins or deploy from Jenkins. Yeah, correct. Cool. Yeah, so we will we we work under the assumption that master should be deployable to production at any time. 
cool. Yeah. But we don't like we would we would still have release branches that would have five or six or ten different pull requests depending on what we're working on. Sure. And we'd merge them all in, and then we would at whatever time, like especially if we're doing any client work, that it's like, hey, client, we are going to do a deploy of this code into production now, and we just give them a heads up, and then then we go. Nice. Okay. Um, but yeah, Jenkins manages all of that because then obviously we get repeatable. They're always exactly the same. We know that every step is always going to be done because we've, you know, we've set that process up in a way that that we needed it to be run. Your Jenkins uh, runs your migrations as well, I'm assuming. Yep. So there's there's a whole bunch of steps that are then run on the on the production server once it's deployed. Um. So you know we'll do all the build steps in Jenkins, but then we'll run. The migrations, we'll run config cache, we'll run route cache, we'll do, you know, the optimizations and things like that as well. Do you have zero downtime deployment or do you take the site down for a small moment while you're deploying Jenkins? No, we do we do zero downtime. So we symlink in a release okay. and we'll just yeah. keep the previous one as well. So you basically do exactly what Envoyer does, except for you do it with Jenkins. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Node modules, you talked about that. So do you do your yarn, your like yarn install step on Jenkins as well? Yep, so Jan is responsible for building all of the assets. So we'll get our compiled assets. Usually we, we're using Mix and we'll version those as well, but we won't transfer those files across to production. So you don't, like when you guys are running those locally, you don't commit those? You just commit your source files and then let Jenkins handle the compiling of those assets? Uh, just the Yarn lock file. And then okay. and then we just run Yarn on Jenkins. It would then grab all, all the packages and then run... We'll run npm run uh, npm run production. production. I think it is sure. using mix. Okay, cool. Mm. Yeah, the uh, for us one of the challenges was uh, we still have a couple that we have to pull down manually. So I'll push up to GitHub and then I have to go log into the server and get pull. And on those servers, it was really slow and annoying and probable problem. What's the word I'm looking for? Problematic. Yes, thank you. Problematic, error prone to run something like npm run mix or whatever np or npm run dev yeah. npm run production whatever and so what we ended up doing and it hasn't really caused very many problems is we will commit assets straight from our local so i'll run npm run production and get my versioned assets and i'll push those straight up because as soon as i pull down then they're set to go everything's good to go and the way that jeffrey does it right now which is that the files are actually different names there has not been any conflicts which is awesome so you just yeah. yeah you just uh push your assets up and there's no compilation needed so even on envoyer which is the one you know our stuff that's deployed with envoyer we don't have to have any uh hooks set up that will run our you know compile the assets because it's just it's done already so it's yeah. really fast and i know it's going to work when i push it up because what i have on my local machine is exactly what's going up to my to my production uh, so that works really well for us is there is there a concept of, of pull requests in GitLab? Yeah, they call them merge requests, but it's exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And is there any tests that are run at that point? Is there any like pipeline you can have for merge requests? Yep, yep. So we run rerun those pipelines on our merge requests, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. All right, last thing, pre-push hook. Is this something that you have set up in like a git config that goes along with the repo? They No, they are per repository. So it's a bit annoying because you've got to manually set it up but in the dot git directory there is a hooks directory okay and in the hooks directory there's a whole bunch of like sample files they're, they're called you know pre-commit dot sample and okay. you just change you rename it to pre-commit and then git will know that it needs to run that before it it like finalizes the commit step 
Okay. Um, so yeah, you could just tell it to run vendor bin PHP unit in there, for example. Can you do that? Is there a pre, there is a, so that's a pre commit hook. Is there a, there a pre push hook? So yeah, like there's a you pre push. push. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of interesting ones that you can run. I like that. that. That's pretty cool. That could, um, Hmm. That's interesting. I've never done that before. I've never yeah, looked so into it. There's like apply patch, there's commit message, post update, pre apply patch, pre commit, pre push. Pre rebase, pre receive, pre pair, commit message, and update. So okay. those are the default um, hooks that exist. I don't know if there's any other ones. So you could have like a pre push hook where it's like you must run the tests, and if they don't pass, we will fail, sort of thing. So you have like a local test thing. Yeah, if the hook returns a non-zero exit code, then that step, whatever it is, whether it's a commit or a apply patch or whatever, will will just bail out. Interesting. I like that. That's pretty cool. I did not know that was in there. Um, yeah. All right. I'm going to have to fiddle around with that. And I'm, I'm sure there's some people who have some really creative hooks and stuff that they've, that they yeah. use. Um, for their there's teams. some stuff that I use from, from Yelp. So they released this thing called cleverly named. It's called pre commit. Um, and it's just pre dash commit.com. <laughs> okay. And that allows you to specify repos and configurations around these things. And it makes it much easier to reproducibly install that between repositories. Hmm. That's pretty neat. And then you can put you can put that configure. I mean, it still it still requires each developer to actually initialize the pre-commit stuff, and you have to have pre-commit installed on your machine. But it makes it much easier to replicate all of that pre-commit stuff rather than you know having to update the pre-commit sample file every time in each repository yourself. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna check that out. Thank you for sharing that knowledge with me. You said, I'm sorry, last thing, node modules, uh, that happens on Jenkins, right? When you do your yarn, yarn install. Yep. Okay. All right. So I, a lot of our stuff is, is pretty similar. So I'm going to kind of go through, we are probably the most, most vanilla sort of very standard deploy for a Laravel app that uses Forge and Envoyer. So if you were looking for the, this is the stereotypical Laravel fanboy, Taylor Otwell <laughs> loving, you know, we use all their <laughs> products, like we are by the book, that's that's us. So deploy a box with Forge. So we've got everything managed uh, for the server through Forge and then all of our deployment process goes through Envoyer. So our typical workflow is we have pull requests that a uh, user will make uh, that pull request will then run through a couple uh, different checks so we use style ci which i love and we also use uh, travis which i also love and um, that will check to make sure that we have psr2 compliant code and then that all of our tests pass in a multiple version of PHP that you can configure in your .travis or travis.yaml file. So like uh, we can make sure it's going to run on PHP 5.5 and 7.0 and 7.1 if we really feel like it. So we use that. Once those things are done, we then require uh, another developer to approve that code. So I'm really loving that with GitHub that you have like um, code reviews uh, built in really nicely. So you can uh, approve request changes or let's see, or just comment. So that's handy. So anytime we have code that needs to go in, it has to be approved by another developer. So that's good. Uh, just a little accountability. And then once that's done, it gets merged to master uh, or a feature branch, depending on how the how it's going. Anything that's merged to master gets auto-deployed. So Envoyer gets a Git hook from GitHub that says, hey, we just had a push to master. Envoyer will then pull that down. It will run Composer install. 
it will do migrations. In some steps, I will use Spassi's backup to back up our Laravel database and sometimes to back up the code base as well. If there's any like changes that would, I mean, that's sort of a little bit redundant, especially if you're using Git, right? Some sort of change log yeah. or change management. So most of them, we don't do that, but some of them we do. And then it's, you know, it clones all that down into a new folder and then does a a symlink over to the new one, so zero downtime. Uh, if there's any ENVs that need to be changed, I usually require that my developers will put that in the link or in the description of the pull request that these ENVs need to be set, they need to be changed. And uh, we have a separate application that we use to manage uh, critical or sensitive uh, passwords and stuff that, um, so we make sure we don't put them in the commit messages or anything like that, right? So I can go in and update the ENVs um, using Envoyer typically instead of Forge before we do our deploy. Because I don't really think you can make that part of your deployment step. Uh, I don't know how you would. So yeah, without not, without putting yeah. those somewhere where it wouldn't belong. So, um, so that's our yeah. deployment workflow. It's it's pretty simple. And um, uh, and I already talked about the assets, how we compile assets locally and then push those up. So it's a it's a very vanilla. It works really well for us. You know, having the the CI stuff, the style CI and the and the Travis CI stuff running before we push to master helps a ton. Catches a lot of nasty bugs and. I've been really happy with it. So it yeah. works good. So for those of you who can identify with the sentiment that was expressed in this Twitter question, who don't want to do Git hooks, which I can't imagine why. I remember when I first discovered like push to deploy, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is yeah. way too easy. And I love it. I don't know why you would not want to do that, especially if you're using version control. If you weren't using version control, I can see why that would be a problem for you. And of course, nobody wants to have to log in to deploy something. So the only other options that I'm thinking here is really you're going to probably deploy using something like SFTP. That's, I mean, I don't know what your other options are. If you're not using a service to pull down your code, what are your other options? I don't, Yeah. I mean. Largely manual, I would imagine. Yeah, so here's your, here's your option. If you don't want to use a Git hook to deploy, that's fine. Use Envoyer and don't auto deploy. Just say, deploy yeah. manually so you can set it up so it doesn't auto deploy you just have to go in and click deploy and it will do the same steps that i just outlined but it's not automatic and that's yeah. fine that's, which is that's, essentially what we're doing through jenkins right there you go yeah exactly yeah you do it manually after all your tests pass through your pipeline right so that's that's fine if you're not wanting to do that if you're not wanting some service or something to build it for you and push it there for you then your other options are something like sftp we won't even mention ftp because that's not an option that's a bad option. Yeah. So actually, Jan, uh, what's his name? Jan, the guy who made FBAR? Yeah, Jan Usland. Jan Usland. He actually has something called FTploy, I think. Let me see here. FTploy. Git FTP deploy is what it is. Git FTP deploy. FTploy is a different application or is a different SaaS, but Git FTP deploy. Uh, it's $15 for a license, which is very, very reasonable. And what it will do is it will allow you to put in your your server information, your, you know, however you want it to connect. You can use FTP or you can use SFTP. You put in your credentials and then you point it at the directory that you want it to go to and you uh, show it where your Git directory is. And what it will do is you can click deploy and it will take those files and copy them from your local computer to that location. And then it will put on that server a like dot get FTP deploy file. And that little get FTP deploy file will keep track of the SHA of the last commit that you deployed to that box. 
So if your teammates were using it, they would be able to see what was the last commit that was pushed to this box. And then uh, on their Git FTP deploy, it would show them, you know, there's been two changes or two pushes to master since the last time this was deployed. So they can choose to deploy just the one push or they can choose to update to get all the way to where it should be now, get to the head of the branch. Or you can you can roll backwards too, I think. So it's um, it's a really pretty awesome product. We use it on some of the stuff that is legacy, legacy, legacy at the uh, nonprofit that I work at that's not in version control and has just been like, you know, forever, like you log in FTP server and change it live. So we're, we're getting them away from that. But this has been a really good in-between <laughs> step for that, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I would suggest that. Yeah, I, I use a similar workflow for some WordPress stuff that I do because on the shared host that, that a lot of these these people are on, it's, it's really the only option. You don't want to FTP. You don't want to manually copy individual files and things like that. So using something like Git FTP deploy is is handy. I've got a, a command line utility that I've used for years. Like even before I was doing WordPress stuff, I was using this because to heck with doing it manually. <laughs> yeah, Yep. Um, one of the things that I'll mention, and then I'm probably going to have to wrap this one up because we are at 40 minutes and because my laptop's about to die. Uh, Surge.sh is a really cool service that Andrew Delpretti uh, mentioned to me recently. And it makes deploying from command line really, really, really easy. So you type Surge. So you get into the directory that you want to deploy. You type Surge. And uh, you have to install their little command line utility. It will ask you for, if you haven't registered on their site, you can register straight through the command line app, which is pretty cool. So you can type in your email and password. It will send it over the wire for you and register you. But then you just say, yep, this is the directory I want to deploy. You can have a custom domain for free. And then you just press enter. And it will push all your files up to them for you. And and it uses a CDN. So it's like static site stuff, right? It's not like PHP. It's static site hosting, but still it's awesome. It's free. It's really easy, really, really easy. So if you're using a static site, that's another option for you. So nice. there you go. All right. Did we have anything else we wanted to talk about? We wanted to talk about a spicy package. Oh, that's Our right. Wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Yes, we did. Let me, let me figure out which one I want to talk about here. There's been, they've been had some really sure. cool, um, some really cool, uh, view stuff lately. One of the ones uh, that yeah. is just coming out is their view tables, their sortable tables component. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have a view tabs component, which is incredible. Uh, I've been looking, we're going to be using that in our most recent application. They have something that makes using Laravel validation on the server side along with a view form on your front end. Really, really easy and it returns all the errors back. Um, really any of their view stuff is going to save you a ton of time. It's going to be tested. In fact, he has a blog post out there about how to test your view components mm. and it's going to work really well. So it's all in view two though. So don't even, don't even ask about view one. Don't even, don't you dare. You should be on view two, view two anyway. It won't happen. You should know, you should know by now, Spassi is not going to do that. They are not going to allow you to, to hurt yourself by using an old version of view. I agree. I do agree, by the way. You should be on view too. So does that count or do we need to... Let me see here. I think that counts. I think that counts. Let me see here. I was not aware about this uh, package, the 
that allows you to handle the the validation. Oh my gosh. So I think we'll definitely have to look at that because you and I have talked about this before and we've been trying to figure out how to do it. Yep, and it works perfectly. And I think it was like three or four days after we spoke about it that that Freik actually put that package out. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... Caleb and Daniel were talking about this on 20% FM where it's it's the it's like the hive mind mentality with Laravel yes. where w- one person somewhere will think about it yeah and then someone else will very shortly after develop that package and solve that problem for you yes here's what I'm going to say we are going to try and have a combo episode next north meets south episode we're going to try and have Caleb and Daniel on I think that'd be really cool they've been doing some awesome stuff I yes. love their podcast every Friday I look forward to it yeah so they've been doing some really good stuff we should have them on sometime that'd be fun I think so cool alright man I gotta run before this laptop dies and I lose my entire recording so <laughs> this is episode 30 thank you so much for listening you can find show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 30 if you have any questions feel free to reach out to us at North South Audio on Twitter uh, or at our personal Twitter handles. Um, yeah, if you like the show, please feel free to rate us up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars is always appreciated. Michael, we'll talk to you soon, man. We will talk to you next Thanks, week Jake. for Laravel News. Hey, and in two and weeks thank you so for- much for my birthday present. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Oh, oh, happy 30th. And this is our 30th, 30th episode. So um, a special. <laughs> this is our golden episode. Michael's golden episode. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Everybody give Michael some it's love. our on, golden episode. All right. All right, man. Take it easy. We'll see you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. All right. Check. Checkity check. All right. And whenever you're ready, you can start recording as well. <clears throat> I am recording. And All right. we can go very soon. All right. Hey, good to go. I'm Michael Durinder. Oh, did you start? Darn it. Uh, start <laughs> over. Do it again. <laughs>